0: All right, folks. Um, Now, here we are. It's um, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. For some of you, it's probably nap time. Uh, Yeah, it's a long day of sitting and listening, so I'll do a little soft shoe, uh, sing a few songs with you, and. maybe have a healing service, Uh, something to uh, bring excitement, I have a word of encouragement to you, it comes from the Bible, he that endures to the end shall be saved, so if you can hold on just for a few more minutes, uh, you will have been, excuse me, this up. Like that. Good. And so, um, yeah, uh, we are going to look uh, at uh, communicating the gospel uh, in the 21st century. I don't think that it's right to say that ours is the first culture that's been difficult to speak the gospel into. There have been very difficult times along the way. Uh, But every age has its peculiar issues. And we've talked about some. You've heard them in your workshops. But we need to first understand... What is the nature of our Western world? I said last night, Christianity no longer has the presumption. There was a time, and I can remember the time, when I was growing up, that you could speak to the average person on the street, and they would know a considerable amount of biblical information. And they would generally acquiesce to the fact God exists. They even thought there was a coming day of judgment, even though they were not prepared for it. Uh, when I remember one day when I was young, and these are the days, or those were the days, when uh, women did their wash on Mondays, and women talked as they were hanging out the laundry. And it was uh, laundry day had passed. They had done their laundry. And they were gathering in their laundry. And there had been a thunder shower off to the west that had passed. And the sky was kind of an eerie green. And the women, not that many of them, 3. They were discussing this and the conclusion was this may be the day of judgment. That's a kind of an odd thing, but it's because they did believe there was a coming day of judgment. Now, how many today, if they saw (laughs) strange atmospheric conditions, would think, oh, this must be the judgment day? No. No that the group of people who even think that God is a plausible idea is shrinking every single day. And on the other side, those who think that science has answered everything is growing larger. That's just the fact, and we don't want to be running around you know, oh woe is me! I really get tired of hearing Christians say that, uh, like they're wimps. But we do not have the presumption. You just can't start out a conversation necessarily thinking the person that to whom you are speaking is going to grant you the fact that God exists. I'm not talking about Christ. I'm not talking about the need of salvation. But they would, con- they would probably say yes. Uh, That there is a God. Uh, There's the loss of the absolute. Now you all know this. We live in a very relativistic age. uh, Where every person is right. Uh, No one can be wrong. And then you mix pluralism in with that. And you can see the state of affairs. Who do you think you are? Uh, I'll mention a little bit something else about that in a minute. Beliefs are expandable, or expendable. excuse me. They're not grounded in any transcendent principle or law. What we have today is uh, the strongest belief that most people in the West hold is my rights. I have a right to this, I have a right to that. There's no sense of responsibility. In 1986, when, excuse me, yes, 1968, When um, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn spoke at Harvard, he reminded us that we breathe with two lungs, rights and responsibilities. We have no sense of responsibility today because we find ways to eliminate consequences we don't like. And hence we're free only to major on our rights. Whereas before... If you can think back only not that many years ago, many people, and I'm just going to say now in America, in America many people really believed that there were certain things that were right and there were certain things that were wrong. And they were actually willing to die for that. Uh, You can think of those who marched off in World War II. How many men and women volunteered long before they were asked to go volunteered to go because they really thought there were certain things that were right and they were willing to die for them, even up through into the Vietnam War. Regardless of what you think about the Vietnam War, the fact is that many of our young men, myself included, my brother, we actually believed that there was a right and a wrong to be defended. Whether you think we were misguided in that, that's not my point. The point is there were things worth living for and there really were things worth dying for. Now that's what societies had been built on. These what we call transcendent principles. At this point in time, I'm not trying to build an argument for those transcendent principles, which I could. I'm only saying they were a given. They're not anymore. So when you and I speak (laughs) about something being absolute, we are accused of being bigots. Uh, holier than thou art. There's one way of salvation. How dare you make a claim like that? Who do you think you are? That this is right and that's wrong. The, uh, the, 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 there's a leveling effect today. There's been a horrible leveling effect in our culture. Everybody is right. Everybody is an expert. We must be very careful at that. Their hierarchy is not anti christian there 's a hierarchy in the family there 's a hierarchy in the church there 's a hierarchy in government. Now what has happened is that under naturalism, what has done, happened is that the idea of hierarchy has been contaminated. It has been confused with the idea of one's worth. Those two have nothing to do with one another. You are, your worth is not determined by the position that you have in whether the society, whether it be in the home, or whether it be in government or whatever. We are our worth, our significance, is derived from who we are as creatures made in God's image. And in that way, we're all equal. But there is a hierarchy. But we are being told there isn't any. Everybody is an authority. And Google will make you an authority if you are not one. And this leveling effect just has... Uh, such a profound influence on how people today can speak we talk in philosophy about having two different Id- two concepts uh, there is the well, one can one can have the, the, the sense that they have they 're an authority of uh, position or they're an authority of expertise uh, today we just see that very much leveled out, and we see people who have uh, a particular position, and I don't mean this to be critical, I'm just going to make an example. In the last election, Oprah Winfrey was considered to be a great political genius. Well, she wasn't, but she could speak with authority, not because of expertise, but because of position. And we are not able for some reason to be, as a people, to think through that. This leveling effect. Fragmentation effect. No one has a sense of common good or general welfare. And I'm just speaking just in, in general terms now. I'm speaking about America, for example. If you look at all of our earlier founding documents, this language of common good or general welfare is something that's quite prominent. That we live for the good of the community. Now, I'm not talking about communism, where the state is the power. I'm simply saying that you look at people, as an example, Thomas Jefferson. Why does Thomas Jefferson lose uh, his, uh, almost lose his his inheritance several times? Why? Because he's serving his country in government. George Washington. These people were not making money, but they believed that they had something to contribute to the common good. Today we're fragmented. Every little group wants its privileged position in society. Every little group. We all want to have, we all want to be equal. I don't care what it does to you, as long as I get what I want. Now Francis Schaeffer warned against this way back in the 1970s, when he said that the two things that would destroy us is this idea of personal peace and affluence. As long as I have what I want, and as long as you leave me alone, then I don't care what goes on anywhere else. Now, that is extremely destructive. It's destructive to a sense of evangelism, reaching out to others. It's a destruction of the concept of love your neighbor as yourself, as well as for other things. Uh, this uh, no common good, this fragmentation of society, And then I put in here that PC, political correctness, is absolutely killing uh, public discourse. It's whether you're talking theologically, sociologically, it doesn't matter how you are speaking. And now because this young man at uh, the university, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, because he happens to write uh, an article which I thought was, I, I couldn't really see anything wrong with it, but he wrote, uh, had some negative things to say about this movement of Black Lives Matter. And he wasn't attacking the movement. He was just saying that people who are in the movement, who are calling for policemen to be killed and fried like bacon, he said people in the movement ought to stand up and get rid of those people because they're injuring this, this uh, movement of Black Lives Matter. But now he's in a battle, legal battle. Uh, the newspaper, the college newspaper, has... Send out a, a you know, this, we terribly apologize that we've created so much tension and discomfort. Right now, for this point in time, I haven't read today, the administration is holding firm in support of free, what we call free speech. But we can't say anything. You know, Mel was just talking about uh, homosexuality. There are things we just can't, well, we can. But you know how we're tagged when we say them because it's not, as we say, PC. All I know about PC is that thing that I have on my desk. Is a growing circle of people who are not rejecting God on the basis of evidence or reason. They aren't. Average person I re- that I speak to, most of them are not rejecting God on the basis of evidence or reason. They just think that the sentence has been given. We don't have to think about it. There is no God. It's that simple. So when you're looking and speaking to people like that, you see our arguments, and, and I want to make it very clear, I am as an apologist, a philosopher. Arguments are important. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying you may, not have to, you may not be able to start there today because the reason that people are rejecting it is not because of reasons to start with. They're just kind of accepting this is, this is what is. I was uh, called to a university and I was asked to debate an atheist there. And uh, This was kind of an informal thing. We were in a class, and uh, an English class. That's what they said in the title of the syllabus. I had questions about it. But so this young uh, professor came bebopping in his cowboy hat. And he was an atheist and he made that known up front. And then all the students uh, in the uh, classroom we're just waiting now for this, uh, the games to begin and see how many of the lions would have, when the lions would win and when the Christian would win. And so, sooner or later, we got everybody getting into the, the debate. And one young lad said to me, I wouldn't believe in the Bible. Interesting. Why not? <laughs> there are too many contradictions in the Bible. Well... Like I'd never heard that before. But I'm playing dumb. And so I say to this young man, now I tell you what, let's do. You tell me which contradiction bothers you the most, and then we'll see if we can deal with it. Yes, yeah, exactly right. Poor lad, his face got red. I mean, he didn't. He didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue. Oh, by the way, you know that old Western song, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them? Okay, if you're not prepared, (laughs) all right, to deal with the seeming contradictions, I wouldn't pull that one, all right? But in this case, um, Nancy, my wife, had written up a cheat sheet for me and I knew how to answer all those contradictions, so I was ready to go. Now, in that case... See, this young man, and I don't blame him, this young man, he, he, he was just taking at face value what he had been told. I was speaking to a group of university students at D.C. They were from George Washington, uh, I forget, American, and another one. And a young man, they were, we, I was, uh, actually they were showing a section... Of uh, the Dawkins uh, Lennox debate, and we were now they they would show they were about twelve minute sections, and then I would answer questions about those particular issues, and we were at the one, can you uh, have morality without God, and uh, so I'm now answering questions, and a young man stood up in the very back, and he said, we don't need God to be moral, and I said, well, okay. So, uh, what's your idea? How are you going to suggest we do this? And he said, well, you don't need God. It's simply a matter of cultural survival. That is, we learn what things are good that help society survive. And I said, well, so now can you explain to me, why do you think your explanation is better than mine? He said, because mine's a simpler explanation. For those in the philosophy world, that's the old Occam's razor line. And so I said, is that so? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do with you, son. You'd show me how your answer to this problem is simpler than mine, and I'll have to give it consideration. I don't even like Occam's razor's argument, but that's okay. I thought we'd take this tack today. And so, five minutes later, he's still trying. And finally he said, can I, can I talk to my friends he had two of them there. I said, sure, you get one call. So, you, you, you talk to your friends. And they would come back and say, well, but wait a minute. That answers this, but it doesn't answer that. Well, can I talk to my friends again? Yes. Now, there's about seven minutes. Finally, he just stood up and said, I can't do it. Well, that's right. Now, see, he had been told that that's all you need to do, and you have simply canceled out the opposition. But he couldn't do it. Of course not. It seemed simple enough, but it couldn't be done. At least he couldn't do it. But now it's quite amazing because that young man came to me with his two friends afterwards and, said, and just said, I really appreciate you forcing me to think about this. He said, this has really been good for me. And then he, conf- he said, you know, I'm a Jewish young man and uh, I'm sure a brilliant young man. I have no doubt about that at all. But what my point is, folks, many times don't you, you you're going to hear an objection? Don't just immediately roll over and play dead and say they have got me. Well, maybe they don't have you. Okay. Many have had no idea that they reject Christianity, other than it's a widespread ridicule of the faith of the God in the Bible, and, you know. Uh, which raises a question for me, why is it that people like Richard Dawkins and others can have their books on the best-selling list and sell millions of copies? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why are so many people attracted to atheism? That's a question that evangelicals need to ask themselves. I'll let uh, you answer that question. Uh, The post-Christian mind... A man is faced with a dilemma today. And that's what we need to understand. He is committed to naturalism. There's no doubt about that. He's committed to naturalism. And yet, on the other hand, he wants freedom. Those two things will not work together. You can't be a naturalist and also have freedom. Why? It's quite simple. Naturalism is based on a closed system. Everything is nothing more than a biological cause and effect. That leaves no room for any kind of freedom. Well, I was debating in person, an atheist on a university campus, and he said, of course. He said, we can explain everything by neuroscience. I said, surely you can? So what? And he explained, for example, morality can be explained as simply cause and effect within a closed system. I said, so how did we do this? And He said, well... We have, you know, the MRI, uh imaging, and we can see certain parts of the brain light up, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, under certain conditions. And I said, well, that's pretty good. Now, I said, I have just one question for you. How do you know that what you see in the imaging is not the cause of some thought, but it's the effect of some cause, or some thought? And he's dead silent. Afterwards, at the cheese and, uh, cheese and Sprite time, um, a couple, came, couple of philosophers of the, of the university came to me and said, let's talk more about this concern, this confusing cause and effect. See, if you're a naturalist, you just assume that it's the effect. But that can't be based on scientific evidence because there is, excuse me, the cause. Because there simply isn't any way to establish it. Not scientifically you can't. So you're committed to freedom. Uh, one of the persons who is bo- one of the individuals who has really struggled with this is Edward O. Wilson. He's a premier biologist, written consilience. He wrote um, a, an open letter to the Southern Baptist pastors called Creation begging us to come in, con- to come in conversation with the atheists. I wrote to Ed Wilson. I said listen, I'm, I'm a Southern Baptist I have, a, I have a platform. I'm going to want you to invite you to come down. Let us talk together about the creation of environmentalism. Oh, he said, Bruce, I'm too busy right now. All <laughs> uh, right. But he has really struggled with this because he knows that if you are a materialist, you can't have freedom. And then there's everything about us that thinks we have freedom. Well, that creates a dilemma. He wants rights but shuns responsibility. Everybody's right, which is decaying social cohesion. How do we live with this dilemma? Um, we, must, we must have man face the fact. So one of the things I learned from Schaeffer is he understood what it was, the dilemma, that humanity at his point in time was facing. We need to be sharp enough, um, insightful enough to understand what is the dilemma that modern man is facing today. Well, I've just expressed you some of the dilemma. That's a point of contact because they have no way of resolving this. None whatsoever. So we help people see this. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer called pre-evangelism. And that is speaking, trying to find ways to talk to the modern man, um, or today we say post-Christian man, uh, how do we get a conversation going with this person? It's the work that we do in order to gain a hearing, so to speak. In other words, we can talk to somebody and they don't just uh, shut us out. Schaefer said that many times people stop listening to us before we've even said a few words just because of where we start. We start with Jesus saves. But folks, talking about Jesus save, being saved makes no sense if I'm not a sinner. And it makes no sense to talk about God sending his son if there are a Trinitarian God does not even exist. You can't start in the middle of the story. Now I know you're anxious to get to the gospel. And well, you should be. But you see, if you want people to listen, you've got to start where they are you've got to begin some kind of a conversation to know what the point of um, difficulty is for them living in the reality in which they find themselves. C.S. Lewis spoke to an audience that was largely atheistic and yet found ways to speak into that uh, that language, of that audience. Francis Schaeffer spoke largely to a relativistic. It was a group, you know, he spoke a lot to the European early on, and they were bound up in existentialism. And both of them used pre-evangelism in a very um, effective way. Schaeffer referred to it as taking off the roof. And he said that a man who lives in this world with non-Christian presuppositions will at some point of time come to a point where his presuppositions clash with the reality in which he lives. Oh, we say reality will push back at you. Now, I can tell you that reality is in the mind. That's what a postmodernist would tell you. Right. So, I'm now going to tell you that there's a door over there. But you see, reality is going to push back at me, real quick, when I approach that wall. Why? Because it's not the way reality is. And we all live in one reality. There aren't two, there aren't three. You don't get to create your own little reality. It's a lot of fun. If you want to sit in your living room and create your own reality, go ahead. But you won't be able to go to work tomorrow morning with that reality. That's all there is to it. And it's a wonderful thing. Reality is a wonderful thing. uh, Lewis said, You'll deceive yourselves, maybe. But reality won't, won't deceive you. Sooner or later you'll come up short. Reality will push back on you. And you can't live consistently with what you claim you believe. Now you do this gently. I was on a plane I think I spent half my life there. I was on a plane, and I guess I think that day I was heading to Amsterdam. And sitting, Sat down beside a young a lady. She's young, yes, yeah, she was about my age. And so, uh, I, I say to her, she's got uh, Atlas Shrugged, not Atlas Shrugged, the book, the title, uh, on her lap by Ayn Rand. And she's, ah, I said, I see you're reading... Atlas Shrugged. She said, I don't understand a word of it. She said, have you ever read anything by Atlas Shrugged? I mean, by uh, Ayn Rand? Yes, I said, I, what? Well, I said her book. I read her book, Objectivist Epistemology. She looked at me. She said, what in the world do you do for a living? <laughs> now, I'm not ashamed that I teach philosophy... At a seminary? No. But I, I know it makes people very uncomfortable. You know, and you expect them to hit the call button and ask the flight attendant, isn't there another seat on the plane that they could go to? And they don't want to be beside this religious person. But she said to me, I'm so glad you're sitting beside me. So then, as I say, I pushed the call button. Uh, Laughter And we got into a conversation, with a third generation Mormon, who is now in, was now then involved in the New Age movement. And as we were talking, constantly she came back and said, listen, everybody, what is right for you is good for you. And whatever is right for me is right for me. And we shouldn't try to force one another's views on the other. And I don't know what to say. I mean talking with this fine lady was like trying to make jello fit to the wall. No matter what I said. I was nothing I could get through. So I stopped. And I'm thinking, Lord, what do I do? What do I say? Well, I don't know. I will take it as of the Spirit of God. I asked the most unbelievable question to ever ask of a suspected grandmother. Do you have grandchildren? Now the reason for that is, you will then hear stories for the next eight hours about the most wonderful, (laughs) most wonderful grandchildren. And then if they're, now it's even worse because they'll pull out their iPhone and show you all the pictures. But I don't know why I asked that question other than I might say, prompted by the Spirit of God, I was praying. And she said, Yes, I do. But she said, it's a terrible situation. And I said, why? Well, she said, because my daughter doesn't know how to raise my grandchildren. So she said, I go over a couple of three times a week. And I try to teach my grandchildren between right and wrong. And I said, my dear, you have me terribly confused. She said, why? I said, a few minutes ago, you were telling me that we just thought that each person should live according to what they think is right. But I said, now you're telling me that you're going over and harassing your grandchildren two or three times (laughs) a week to make them believe as you do. Now, I'll never forget there was silence. Then she looked at me and she said this, I can't have it both ways, can I? Mm Mm-mm. Now, what did I do? Well, Os Guinness calls it turning the tables. Uh, Lewis uh, uh, Schaefer called it taking off the roof. I just gently showed her that she cannot live consistently with her, with her beliefs. Her worldview does not fit the world in which she lives. Now, you see, we're ready for talk. Now you say, oh boy, I'm going to use that the next time. No, I'm just giving that as an illustration. I don't know that it works every time. may never work again. But now you see, that's the sort of thing of which I'm talking about. Schaefer said, the truth that we first let in is not a dogmatic statement of truth of the scriptures, but of the truth of the external world and the truth of what man himself is. This is what shows him his need and the scriptures then show him the real nature of his lostness and the answer to it. And that's where we need to go. Uh, people really need to understand that they have a moral guilt before God. Not just because they feel guilty. I mean they have a moral guilt because they have been judged by uh, a standard for which they have no answer and they're found guilty. And we can't get to that immediately because so many of the people with whom we are in conversation simply do not even believe that God is there. So you have to find ways in your circle as you're engaging people, how might you do this sort of a thing? And I do mean this, say this, with the utmost seriousness And without trying to sound overly spiritual, you do need to ask God to help you. What kind of question might I ask this person? How might I get this conversation to go? Did I know that when I asked that lady, did she have grandchildren? Did I know that that's where the conversation... No, I did not. I had no idea that that's where the conversation was going. I'm not that smart. Schaefer understood that modern man lived below the line of despair, that is, he faced this great dilemma. And I'm wondering if we understand the dilemma of the post-Christian man. You see, he has to live in this reality. And this reality is, is created by the infinite personal creator God. And even though it's fallen, it still runs by the order that God put into the universe at the day of creation. And that's the world we must live in. And the only way you can live in this world and I might say, carefully successfully, is if you have Christian presuppositions about this world. When reality is the issue, it's not my belief uh, that comes against of another. See, this is the wonderful thing about dealing with reality. No longer did it was it my belief against this lady's belief, it was reality against her belief. And now, I'm, I, I'm not sitting here defending my belief. Now, I'm not saying you won't have to do that. Of course. You must always be ready to defend. You must always be ready to give an answer. You must always be ready to give an argument if that's what's called for. What I'm saying is that lady no longer saw my belief that was against her belief. What she saw was that her belief didn't fit with the world in which she lived. It didn't even fit with her own humanity. Schaefer was often to say that man, he early used to say that man is not junk, even he's fallen, then he used to then he changed it to man is not a zero. I think evangelicals need to have our view of humanity tweaked just a little bit. Man is wonderful. Even though he has fallen, even though he has Um, separated from God humanity is wonderful and we can take advantage of that treat humanity as humanity made in the image of God respect it treat it well most of the time that when we're engaged in our witnessing and our apologetics we speak with dogmatism Now, there's a difference between dogmatism and confidence. Listen to other believers, other other people, as if they might have something to say to you. Even an atheist. That's going to cause some of you to bristle. You think, the atheist doesn't have anything to say to me. But you ought to listen. You know, if, if I speak with such dogmatism to the unbeliever, then there's, only, there's no way to get a conversation going at all. There's only one thing for that person to do. Come to my side. That's all, that's all that's left. But if we speak to this person with a sense of what I would call epistemic humility, that is, share with someone as another member of the human race who has some of the same hopes and fears and dreams that you have. See a human being. And if you have a hard time doing that, try looking them in the eye. Much is said when you look at someone in the eye. You see something of humanness there. According to. Uh, according to see the conclusions. That's what. Uh, uh, as I said. Os Guinness calls it. Turn the tables. Is what I did. With that lady. But don't please. That is not a game. You don't figure out techniques. To turn the table. You, every person we see is going to be different. And you're going to talk to people different than I talk to people. You're going to see different people. People with different backgrounds and all the rest of it. Figure out what kind of questions to ask them. To show that you have a concern for them. Don't just say, oh, you know, oh, I, I love you because you're made in the image of God. And then when they don't want, to think, don't want to continue the conversation, you walk away. Oh, that's some love for the image of God, is it not? Not. Um, look at Luke chapter. You don't have to look at that. Luke eighteen, eighteen. You remember the rich young ruler? <laughs> this is turning the tables. The young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, "What? What must I do, good master, to inter, to inherit eternal life?" And you want now you 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 want to get him straightened out right off, don't you? Oh, don't you understand? You can't do anything. To inherit eternal life? Straighten that fellow out. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, oh, you want something to do? I'll give you something to do. Sell all that you have and give to your poor. Ah, the tables just got turned. Because he said, you know, he'd kept all the commandments. Of course, Jesus knew he hadn't. And the one, he hadn't kept the first commandment, had he? Because... His money was actually his God. But you see how Jesus worked on that? You want something to do? We want to get rid of the end. straighten them right out. No, let them see it to the end. Let them see it to the conclusion. Where does that end up? In the importance of questions, respect the person. Listen to J- Jesus at the woman at the well. Uh, what is it they believe before defending what you believe? Always, I always try to do that. Someone says... I believe, you know, if I start a conversation, well, I don't believe there is a God. Now, our tendency, because evangelicals, we're we're kind of proud of all we know, we just want to tell them why they should believe in God. But, stop. Ask them. That's an interesting belief. Why is it that you believe God does not exist? Let them defend themselves. Now, it gives you a little time to think. But the other thing is, what it really helps you is to understand the thinking of that person. What, why is it that person doesn't believe in God? You know, maybe it's like the young man who said he didn't believe in the Bible because of all the contradictions. On the other hand, maybe this person has a really good reason. And I, I know, I'm sorry, you don't think there's any good reason not to believe in God, but just pretend there is one for a moment, okay? Um, my, you know... My mom died when I was three. My father died when I was four. And, you know, you just make it as bad as you can. And they say, a good God would never let that happen. Now you better, you ought to have some empathy for that person. And try to understand why, what would it be like if I lived like that? Would I maybe think there is no God? And then with a gentle spirit and a kindness, begin to question and begin to work with that person as that person, knowing how to expose category mistakes. I always have a famous question I ask my philosophy students, where was the man when he jumped off the bridge? And it's always kind of clever, but, well, he was on the bridge. Well, no, that was before he jumped. Well, he was in the air. No, that was after he jumped. And then, you know, they get kind of scratching their head. Well, the problem is, There's a category mistake in the question. We don't need God is a different question from saying he doesn't exist. At this group that I was with in in, uh, D.C., a lady stood up and she said, we don't need God. I said, well, okay. But I said, you do understand that that's quite a different statement than saying God does not exist, isn't it? Those are two different things. And she looked a little puzzled. Now, you may not think I should do this, but I said to her, well, I don't need a gynecologist either. (laughs) But it doesn't mean they don't exist. I mean, there's a difference, folks. You've got to understand this, eh? So now the question is formed in a totally different way. You haven't knocked me off the stage. You're dealing something totally different. You're dealing with two different issues here. Now, you don't have to be clever to do that. I'm a farmer, and I've learned how to do it. So you don't, it, it, this is not rocket science. Help people to see through. Some people are really hard to, they're kind of hard nuts to crack, we say, right? I was a young man uh, that I was talking to you about Sunday, uh, the other night, I think I mentioned Dima. And Dima was a uh, mechanistic materialist, young Russian naturalist. He said, I never feel guilty about anything. And I said, okay. Well, he said, why should I? Everything's determined. He said, I don't care who determines it, whether it's a God that determines it or the laws of the universe determine it. I said, so you're telling me that if I stole your coat, you wouldn't be upset at me? He said, no. You were determined to steal my coat, and I was determined to have my coat stolen. Now, what do you say about that? Well, now again, you may not like, so you don't have to use these examples, uh, these ways of doing things. So, I wrote to Dima, and I said to Dima, and this is the one I was doing this by email, and I said, now Dima, suppose I came to your flat, and you, I came to your country, you let me stay in your flat, and the next morning, when you get up to go to work, You go happily off to work, and I jump in bed and have sex with your wife. How's that, Dima? Hmm. The next day, comes the reply. Bruce, you are a good man, and you wouldn't do that. (laughs) Ah, all of a sudden I guess things aren't determined, are they? Now, you don't have to go to those extremes, I mean. um, I'm just... You need to understand what are you answering. What kind of question are you answering? Science has proved there is no God. Uh, one lady said that, and it comes back to the same thing. I say, well, so, what if evolution is true? You just grant evolution is true, in the, in the strictest sense of the word. What does that say about God's existence? Absolutely nothing. Because evolution only talks about how something came to be. It doesn't talk about the existence of God. Now, you say, well, why do you give so much away? Because I want to start a conversation. Uh, do we really want to be relativists? Now, let me see. I think I'm coming to a close here. So I need, to, I need to, as they say, land the plane. Nobody wants to be a relativist. Do you know that they're now atheists? Mark Hauser, for one, written Moral Minds. There are a number. Walter Cedric Armstrong's another one. They don't believe in... They believe in moral absolutes now. Can you believe that? Atheists believe in moral absolutes. Universal moral absolutes. Why? Few people after 9-11 want to be moral relativists. It's just the way it is. I debated a young man in, uh, from California, an atheist. You know, I don't know what university he was with, but in, Cali- in, in, in Pennsylvania uh, a couple years ago. And uh, this is exactly what he said. no. He said, uh, I, I, I agree with Dr. Little. There are universal moral absolutes. That's pretty nice. So now, you, what's my next question? Where do they come from? And then you see the fun begins. Oh, this young man said, Oh, he said, well, he said, they're up there. He said, they're universals. And I said, okay. But now you're saying I know them. Could you explain to me how the universals up there get into this thing down here? The same old problem that Plato had. And you know what he said? On the stage. I never thought about that. That's right. But they give us a lot today by saying there are moral absolutes. Because nobody, we, we think in moral categories. We appeal to something being right or wrong. We think it's right to be a friend. It's uh, right to tell the truth. <laughs> I could think of some other people who think that's not true but generally speaking this is true. It's wrong to harm uh, unjustly another. Now I would add a lot more to my list but when I'm dealing with an atheist and an atheist says I, dis- I think these are universals it's always wrong everywhere. One, one person I was debating said oh you don't, you don't look at rape and say oh that one's wrong and that one's wrong and that one's wrong and go to a universal and he said no Rape is a universal wrong act, always has been wrong, always will be wrong. My goodness. Well, I can agree with that. Where does he come from? And then, you see, we've got a discussion. It's wrong to torture children. Man has a longing for the eternal. Ecclesiastes 3.11. Uh, This accounts for the sense of longing, the search for meaning, and the intuition that we're more than a machine. That's the dilemma that man has today. His naturalism denies that. His intuition tells him, I do have choice. What am I going to do with that? Um, Man seeks to make sense of his world. Uh, The first 20th century man does not know how to ask the right questions and so often we have to help people know what the right question is. Gently help people to see this is the question that needs to be asked. And don't be uh, mean by that. And then I would just say, language speaks to reality, modal language. Why do we have language like would, should, ought? Well, because that's the way the world is, folks. And if I say you ought to have done that, that means you had a choice, or that statement is totally meaningless. And you say to me, you should not have stolen my wallet, unless that's the way the universe is, that's a meaningless statement to make to me. Um... Qualitative language would talk about good and better. Inquisitive language, isn't it amazing? What is one of the first things little kids ask? Oh, gosh. Drive a parent crazy. Why, why, why? Where did I come from, Mommy? Oh, you come from Mommy's belly. Oh, well, where did Mommy come from? Grandma's belly. Now, the wise parent, right, gets Adam and Eve as soon as possible. Okay. This is going to be a very long conversation. Now, what does that tell you about humanity, folks? I'm just going to use a big word on you. It tells us that intuitively know that infinite regress simply is not an answer. That is, you keep going back, 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 back. Because we want to come to the point where I don't have to ask the question any longer. Where did that come from? So mommy says, where did, after, where did Adam and Eve come from? She says, God. And the child says, where did God come from? And the mother says, go out and play. No. The mother says, this amazing thing, God came from nowhere because he always was. Now we don't have to ask the question anymore. You found the engine that pulls the train. Amazing. ah, the other thing is about that is that we know intuitively that we are what we call contingent beings. Why do I ask the question where I came from if I think I'm the cause of my own existence? Oh. You see how you're getting this. How easy this is? It's really quite easy. This language just tells us it's the way the world is. Well, what's the best way to explain it? Well, reality is one way it's not another simple things of life folks language just understanding man's dilemma helps you to ask the kind of questions that will get a conversation going you say does that mean then they're going to come to Jesus I don't know there are many people who will start the conversation and to get to the point of Jesus and they want nothing more to do with it I can't that's it okay but let us be as faithful as we can and as wise as we can be to engage people in a meaningful conversation as human beings and not just as objects to move from the kingdom, from out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We want to do that. C.S. Lewis said he had two prayer lists. One prayer list, he said, was for those people who do not know Christ as their Savior. He said, the other one is those who know Christ as Savior. For the ones who don't, I pray that they might become Christians. For the ones who do, I pray for them that God would give them wisdom. And he said, in a letter to a friend, oh, what joy when a name moves from one list to the other. May God help us to see that happening in our lives. Let's pray. Father, to these things we commend ourselves to you and to the word of your grace to the work of your spirit asking it in Jesus name Amen